Welcome everybody to the nightclub interview series where my guest today is the esteemed philosopher, David Loy. But before we get started, as usual, a few housekeeping items. My latest book, Dreams of Light, was published just a few weeks ago. So in order to um, kind of unpack that and fold that, we're starting a book study group, September 22nd. The link will be attached at the end of this talk. And also I'm doing a program for the Open Center in New York City on Bardo's and Everyday Life. That link will also be attached. So I wanted to share my incredible enthusiasm for the upcoming interview with David Loy. He's a remarkable individual. He's written a number of books, and we focus principally on his really outstanding teachings on non-duality. What exactly is non-duality? This term is tossed around so casually, but what does it really mean? What is the role of meditation in uncovering a non-dualistic world? And then what are the things that we don't see? How do we continue to keep ourselves in the dark? What are our blind spots as meditators around non-duality altogether? We have a wide-ranging conversation about things like spiritual reductionism, how we can reduce many of the world's complexities and the fundamental, relatively simple spiritual tenets. How does the sense of lack drive everything that we do? And then what I so appreciate about David is the ability to turn to really practical concerns. All the issues that are facing the world today, ecological devastation, social upheaval, and political discord. So we talk about that in some detail. And then we get to really explore so many of the other nuances that this remarkable thinker brings. So I'm very excited to spend this next hour and 45 minutes with David Loy and uh, basking in the glow of his own wisdom. Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. I am particularly excited about my guest today my new dear friend, David Loy. And as usual, I'm going to start with a brief, somewhat official formal bio of this remarkable individual. And then um, as you will discover, there is no shortage of amazing topics we're going to be diving into. So David Robert Loy is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Zambo Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. He's a prolific author whose essays and books have been translated into many languages. His articles appear regularly in Buddhist magazines such as Tricycle, Lions Roar, and Buddha Dharma, as well as a variety of scholarly journals. David lectures nationally and internationally on various topics, focusing primarily on the encounter between Buddhism and modernity, what, can, what each can learn from the other. He is especially concerned about social and ecological issues. So David, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Well, thank you, Andrew, for this invitation. And I'm, I'm pleased that we finally met. And as you said, I think we won't run out of things to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, there's a number of things I want to just say at the outset before we jump in. Um, when I have uh, such a rare opportunity to converse with not just a scholar of your subtlety and depth and scope, but I think even more importantly for me, David, is the, this really elegant juxtaposition of scholar practitioner that you, you're a longtime student of the Zen tradition, that you 
walk the talk, so to speak, or in this case, sit the talk. And, <laughs> and therefore, you bring so much more than um, just a mere academic lens to this. And, and the other thing that's so inspiring to me is, and maybe we can come back to this and close it at the end, is your uh, extraordinary interest in activism, um, in writing around and about the ecological situation and how as bodhisattvas these days, we are really um, eco-sattvas. And so I want to come back <laughs> to that topic, David, but mm -hmm. with your permission, this is where I want to go with you because again, you, you just have such a unique lens on the things that I have so much passion for these days. And I want to start with, with a discussion that is very near and dear to my heart because as I age, I find myself increasingly more interested in uh, what the Tibetans refer to as the nintig, the heart essence of the teachings. Mm. And mm -hmm. I, I find um, in my practice and study that that heart essence is in fact the exploration of non-duality. And I have a particular passion for it because in the Bardo teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, um, which I now really look at as a kind of wrathful form of liberation, Mm -hmm. that um, we're heading towards this hard essence. We're, we're actually heading towards non-duality. And in a very real way, then the entire path is this kind of death in slow motion. And so mm. I, I would love to explore this topic with you because you write about it with such elegance um, and you, you bring such a unique perspective to it. So why don't we start for our listeners with what is non-duality? I mean, it's, it's such a common, you know, it's common parlance. We toss it around so flippantly. It's in many circles synonymous with awakening, synonymous with enlightenment. And I'd be curious to see if that's resonant with you. Mm. But what is your understanding, both um, experientially and doctrinally, of this term that's so flippantly used? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think a lot of the problem with the term is that it means too many different things according to context and uh, it's not always clear which which thing which meaning is referred to i mean in its essence right i mean non-duality literally means not to and it usually involves the the claim that two things that we have been understanding as separate from each other are in fact interdependent and perhaps even sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, so whenever we hear or read the term non-duality, it's really important to, to ask immediately uh, what duality is being denied here? Um, because without that sense, it, it, it's going to be very confusing. Um, so I, I'm interested in a number of different uh, types of non-duality. I mean, one of them is what you might simply call uh, non-dual thinking or uh, a, a critique of bipolar thinking in the sense that two concepts we think of as separate are in fact two sides of the same thing, as I said. For example, good and evil, I think is a very, is, is a very good example there. Um, we don't really know the meaning of good until we know what's being denied, what is not good, what is evil, and vice versa. So um, this plays out not only conceptually, but also in, 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 in terms of how we actually live, that often 
the way that we feel good about ourselves is that we are discriminating or attacking or in some way uh, defending ourselves against what we understand to be evil, right? So to be good is to be not evil. To be evil is to be not good. And, and it's interesting how that plays out historically, how, for example, say in Christianity, if God is all good, well, you've got to sort of invent or create or find an evil, which is represented by, by Satan or, or Lucifer. Um, and uh, like, likewise, historically, if you think about the history of Europe, it's, it's fascinating to see how this has sadly involved persecution of, of witches and heretics and, and so forth. So, so that's one example. And, we, you know, we could spend quite a bit of time going into interesting versions of that. Um, but I suppose the, the, the type of non-duality that is of most interest to me is, is the one between subject and object or yes. self and other. In other words, our normal way of experiencing the world is that I have this sense of self that's separate from the world, the environment that I'm in. Uh, and of course, the, the fascinating claim of so many of the, uh, what I would call non-dualist traditions, because I would include not only Buddhism, especially Mahayana, but also something like Taoism or Vedanta, this, this fascinating claim that in fact, the sense of separation between inside and outside, between subject and other is in fact a, a delusion or at least a construct that becomes quite problematical. And I think that's a, that pings on some really important points for me, David, and that's this idea of what you just ended with, that in fact, um, duality is a construct and, and in, in, quite literally by definition, non-duality is negation, right? It's, it's right, implies, not to. Right. Yes, exactly. It, it implies a process of deconstruction. So what, what is it that's actually being deconstructed? I mean, what, uh, obviously these are avenues that, that can take us down all kinds of routes, but if we're looking at neg um, negation, we're looking at deconstruction, what fundamentally is being negated and, and deconstructed here? <laughs> well, what's being negated is the duality. The claim of the non-dualist traditions is that there's a non-dual way to experience the world so that we don't have this sense of separation between inside and outside, between subject and object. And of course, the really interesting thing is that these traditions offer us practices, usually some type of meditation that can help us do that. It's not enough simply to understand something like this claim theoretically or intellectually that uh, it, it's important to actually deconstruct the way we're experiencing the world and ourselves in the world. Yeah, and this, has, you know, this really ties into um, kind of corollary topic that I think we can start at this point that, you know, according to the non-dual traditions, as I've come to understand them, you know, non-duality is the natural state. And if that is in fact the case, and this of course is why, uh, parenthetically, why when we die according to the Tibetan Buddhist approach, we're simply returning to this natural state of non-duality. So within this kind of context, David, where did the non-dual legacy come from? How, how did we go so far astray? Well, let, let me start by flagging that term natural. Uh, because certainly in the in the Tibetan tradition, as in many others, it's it's a value laden term, right? It's not uh -huh. it's not just a descriptive one, but you know we're saying natural is good, 
unnatural is is not good. I mean, similar to what organic or, or organic foods are better than processed ones or or something like that. Uh, and, and the reason I want to flag it is that when I look at something like evolutionary psychology, it's not at all clear to me that that natural. I mean natural can involve problematic things as well. I mean, the Buddha in one of his first sermons talked about the, uh, the world being on fire with the three poisons, greedy will delusion. And my understanding of something like evolutionary psychology is there's a sense in which those are actually natural. They are built into us genetically because they helped our species uh, reproduce and, and, and not only survive and thrive. So I just wanted to flag that that yeah. sense of, of naturalness that it's not, as I understand it, it's not, you know, always the case that our goal should simply be to return to the natural state. I yeah, guess there are certain contexts in which I would want to sort of raise questions about that. I think that's yeah. really great, David, and I appreciate the nuance here because when when we start referring to topics of such subtlety then the uh, the way we use our language, um, the way words are engaged becomes somewhat important. And I think perhaps what might be worth throwing into the mix at the outset here is that this is where, at least in my opinion, we have to make this very critical distinction between relative and absolute truth. Um, and perhaps, mm -hmm, exactly. perhaps, perhaps what you're asserting, especially from the evolutionary psychology point of view, is really more relativistic. It's from the, from the relative point of truth, because on one level, you know, if we equate, and whether this equation is, is uh, valid or not, I'd like to hear what you think about this. If we equate non-duality with emptiness, then on one level, emptiness does not evolve. So it, it, it really doesn't, um, it's not amenable to the tenets of evolutionary theory. Um, form evolves, and that's more relative truth. So does that, land, does that land with you? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. I guess what I would, what, what would add to it is, if, if we're talking about, absolute and relative in terms of, of sort of two ways of experiencing ourselves in the world, two ways of experiencing the world. So the, the phenomenal or the relative would be our normal way of understanding uh, ourselves. And then the essential would be more what we're talking about, the, the non-dual way of experiencing. Uh, but, but I think it's interesting that, you know, within Buddhism, that, that the goal would not simply to be to become aware of the non-dual, but that there are these two alternative ways of experiencing and what's important is to be able to sort of shift from one to the other according to the context. I mean, there are times if I'm dealing with depositing a check in the bank or, or you know, certain types of, um, you know, responsibilities in, in the world, uh, then the relative way of experiencing might be the appropriate way to go. So in other words, what I'm saying is, as I understand Buddhism, we start from this relative understanding, we open up and become aware of this absolute or non-dual or emptiness uh, way of experiencing. And I think the ultimate goal, you could say, is realizing both and, yeah. and interfusing both, as it were. Which yeah, is kind well, of a lifelong challenge, I think. Isn't that, that really isn't never it? comes yeah. to an end? Yeah. To develop to develop that fluidity of identity. But I mean, really, in this hmm. regard, I think I also feel it's important to throw into the mix that you know, the absolute 
can transcend but include the relative, but the mm. relative cannot transcend but include the absolute. And so there, there does mm. seem to be, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, some type of, um, I mean, supremacy is a delicate word these days, but some type of greater <laughs> truth, some mm. type of greater truth to the absolute because one can contain sure. the form and the other can't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I, so I'd agree with that. And so, so, so getting back to your question. Go exactly, ahead. exactly. That's where I wanted to return. So who can we dig up and hang? I mean, Aristotle, <laughs> Aristotle, Plato. I mean, who, who are, who are, you know, we live in, we live in Aristotle's world. How, how much are we influenced by our Greek intellectual heritage? Unknowingly. Well, I mean, I would, I would go back a lot further than Aristotle to just our evolutionary heritage, the way of, the way of biology. I mean, I, I think that uh, you could understand the evolution of life as involving a certain kind of duality. There's a sense in which, you know, life forms develop out of and as a manifestation or expression of a certain kinds of environment. But insofar as life wants to preserve and reproduce itself, yeah. we could ask, is, is there some sense of separation and duality built in that, that organisms will do what they have to in order to do that? But in terms of, um, in terms of, of, of human beings, you know, this, this very odd and special species that we are, I, I think a lot of the sense of duality has to do with language and, and mm. the role that language plays in our way of what understanding or, or objectifying ourselves in the world and, uh, and creating that, that sense of separation between inside and out. Yeah, I mean, our language is, is I've reflected this on great deal, and as you know, many very sophisticated philosophers have, have done mm. the same, that we, right. that, you know, we, we think, think, largely because of nouns. We, we live in a wor world of subject um, and object, um, mm -hmm. nouns and verbs. And so right. can you right. say a little bit more about that? Because this, this begs and leads into the next question that I wanted to pose to you, and that is how is it that we unconsciously in my language, continue to practice not, uh, duality because I, I don't I don't think it's just this one big kind of samsaric bang that we're still kind of recovering from. I I, I personally believe that we unwittingly um, practice meditate on duality, become increasingly familiar with it all the time. And I think mm, one of the ways we do it's that a process. Is, yeah, yeah, we we fall victim to things like language. So say a little bit more about that because I, I sure, think this sure. is a fiendishly important topic. No, I, I agree completely there. And I like the way that you picked up on the, the duality between noun and verb or between subject and predicate. I mean, I think that that, that, that has a lot to do with it. Uh, and as, as you know, that's sort of at the foundation of all the Indo-European languages. Interestingly, not so much in something like Chinese or, or Japanese, but the result of that is that we do tend to see the world as as a collection of things that then do things right this that anytime there's a process there has to be a thing that's doing it um, um, but getting back to your basic question there what i find fa most fascinating about this issue is is that the way it helps me understand um a, a kind of difference that I detect between what I was learning from my Zen master and what I pick up when I'm reading, say, the Pali Canon. Because in the Pali Canon, as you know, the Buddha summarizes his teachings into the Four Noble Truths, right? Dukkha, suffering in the broad sense, 
and then the uh, the cause of dukkha is desire or maybe better craving uh, but interestingly my zen teacher i don't believe he ever referred to the four noble truths and he certainly didn't talk about the problem as craving rather the problem was understood to be concepts conceptualizing mm. Uh, and so what's going on here? What is the fundamental problem? Is it craving? Is it conceptualizing? And, and as, as I see it, I think that actually there, there are two sides of the same thing. And the way that we can understand that is by, by, by looking at, at language, which, which we are now, that, that when we grow up and learn the language, it, it's not just a way of communicating with each other, but it's actually how we structure, how we construct the world, right? Yeah. So if I look around the kitchen, I see a, a collection of what, cups and saucers and, and pans and, and, and so forth. Um, but the, the really interesting thing about that is that calling something a cup, it, it, it's not just a, a proper name, it's a concept. By mm -hmm. identifying it as a cup, I know what it's for. And, and I think that's the important thing. Functions, ways of relating to the world are built into the way that we divide up the world with language. And because of that, then that's how we are uh, enabled to fulfill our desires or try to fulfill our, our cravings. I guess what I'm trying to point out here is that there, there are three things going on. There's mm -hmm. kind of triumvirate that are part of the same process. There's the language that, which divides up the world in terms of things that are actually processes. And these enable us to try to de, uh, resolve, um, um, satisfy our cravings. And I think that is a pretty good description of the phenomenal world. This is how we normally experience the world. Psychologists have realized that, you know, in, in daily life, we're actually not paying all that much attention to something like a cup, just enough perceptual input to identify it as a cup. And then I know what it's for. And then I know how to use it when the time is appropriate. So I think putting all that together is, in fact, uh, as I said, a pretty good description of the way that we normally experience the world, which is very much dualistic. By separating, by identifying something, say, as a cup, and then knowing that it's available to serve a particular kind of function, that everything becomes a means to some other end, I think that's kind of the, the primary sort of dualistic move that makes us feel separate from it. Yeah, no, that's really terrific. And, and, and to even backpedal just a little bit to put an exclamation point on some of what you said, that you know, I, I think you would definitely agree that in a very real level, there, there are no nouns in reality. Mm, uh, mm, there really exactly. are only just verbs. And, and I was thinking here of how mm. in, in the Jewish tradition, the, you know, the name for, for their God is uh, unnameable. It's actually unpronounceable mm. by design. Mm. That, mm. that it, you want to trip the, the linguistic conceptual mind in, into keeping out. It's like a way to frame mm -hmm. this way. And, and the other way to like, I think about this, David, is that, you know, I'm very interested in um, this notion of near enemies and near friends, which is mm -hmm. you know, kind of central to the alchemical tradition and also the tantric tradition. And, and for me here, it, it kind of points to the, the near enemy of articulation, that the near enemy of articulation is in fact reification. Mm -hmm. That we, we very easily slide 
um, when the, the kind of the clarity, the articulate quality of the mind starts to discriminate in the kind of pejorative sense. And then we freeze frame. We, we basically freeze mm -hmm. everything and therefore we get stuck at the level of a map. And so when you're talking about this, another way to say it really is we, we end up uh, living in the map and not in the territory. Mm -hmm. We eat the menu instead of the meal. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we wonder why we're not being nourished. I, I, I actually think this is the <laughs> basis of the obesity epidemic, that we're, mm -hmm. that we're eating the wrong thing, uh, inauthentic consumerism, if you will. And so mm -hmm. to me, this, you know, when I first came across this, I, I almost found it somewhat patronizing because it, it seemed can it really be this kind of obvious and simple? You know, it really can language have this kind of impact? And, and the more I reflect on it and the more, uh, to return to this earlier um, narrative, the more I deconstruct, just like you're saying, the more I realize that language is absolutely at the core of the way we fragment the world and then live in that fragmentation. Mm. Mm. I, I, I'm struck also, uh, I mean, I just think of Yogacara and, and really the fundamental claim there. I mean, it's not a subjective idealism as we understand it in the West, although it's often taken that way. But, but the fundamental claim is, is something about the way we grasp, right? That grasping, and we do that with language, right? We, we grasp, I, I see it. We, we grasp in a way with the eyes as well. I, I see something as, as a cup, and the claim of Yogacara is that act of grasping is what reifies both the objective, objectively existing external cup and the sense of a separate self, a subject that is doing the grasping. And so that's, that's the two sides of the fundamental move and why something like meditation is so important, because it's learning to perceive in a way that, that doesn't grasp. And, in that fashion. Yeah, and you, and you hit on something here again, uh, an absolute segue into what I wanted to transition towards when you talk about grasping with the eyes. I, I think um, one of the most interesting things you write about is the um, kind of the centrality of vision and how it in a certain way predisposes us towards a dualistic view. And, and I, I have a quote here that I wanted to share with you, David, from, this is a lovely book, uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark by Barbara Brown Taylor. I don't know if you know her or know this work. She's a Christian theologian. I don't. Yeah, just a beautiful writer. And, and so she's talking a little bit here about visions. And she's quoting a, a French writer and says here, the problem, this is her, the problem with seeing the regular way is that sight naturally prefers outer appearances. It attends to the surface of things, which it makes it an essentially superficial sense. We let our eyes skid over trees, furniture, traffic, faces, too often mistaking sight for perception, which is easy to do when our eyes work so well to help us orient ourselves in space. And then she has, there's one other thing here I wanted to share with you because I just found it so elegant. Yeah, here it is. It makes me wonder how seeing has made me blind <laughs> by giving me cheap confidence that one quick glance at things can tell me how they really are. I, I thought that was just beautiful. So yes. talk a little bit more about it. And that, the reason I'm riffing on this, David, from my end is, you know, within the context of, of the so-called nocturnal meditations, I riff quite a bit on, um, uh, wake centricity, 
site centricity, photocentricity, all in the service of egocentricity. And so I'm really interested in the powers of vision, um, how, how we're dominated by sense, uh, the sense of sight, how literally you know, a third of our brain processing power is devoted to processing visual data. Mm -hmm. And also interesting to throw this back into the mix, David, that um, you know, according to the kind of ritualized phenomenology of the Buddhist descent into death, when the senses dissolve, they go from gross to subtle, from most dualistic to non-dualistic. And, and therefore, as it says, even in the Heart Sutra, you know, the first sense to, to dissolve is mm. the most dualistic one. No, no eyes, no eye, yeah. no ear, no nose. And so we're actually right. heading towards non-duality. Right. So let's talk about this because I think, again, what I'm trying to convey to my listeners is all the kind of forces of the dark side and, and how, again, we unwittingly, unconsciously, non-lucidly practice duality. And one way is, is kind of capitulating to the supremacy and, and the power of our vision. So share some of what you've written and talked about that, because I found it just riveting when I came across these teachings. Well, well the first thing I want to say is just sort of reinforce something I said a bit earlier, how uh, psychologists who investigate perception, you know, emphasize that we're actually not really looking that closely most of the time. There's just enough visual input to identify. Somehow it, 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 it touches, it, it identifies, it enables us to, to label the particular thing. And then having done that on, on a normal, in a normal sort of process, we don't really pay that much attention. I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here is we, we think we see the visual world. In fact, what we're experiencing is, is very much a, a, a construct, a yeah. construct built not only out of what the eyes see, but what the mind thinks and the way that learning language and growing up with language basically mixes them in a way that we're not aware of unless we do something like engage on, on a meditative path. Yeah. Uh, get, getting back to your, your question about vi vision. I mean, um, it's fascinating that when we think about non-duality, uh, vision is in some ways the most challenging of the senses. Yeah. Um, if you compare it with something like, say, hearing, I mean, we can normally make a distinction between, say, me or I as the one who is hearing an objective sound, but, but it doesn't seem tripartite in the same way that in, in the case of vision, there's a me, there's a perception of a separate thing, that there's a thing separate from the perception of it. So again, that's a way of saying that the, that the vision is, is especially challenging and problematic. Um, but also in, in evolutionary terms too, uh, when we first stood upright, I think that is what sort of encouraged the development of vision, because as long as we were close to the ground, like, say, uh, a dog or, or a wolf, sound was actually more important and often the sense of smell as well. But once we stood up in our hind legs, you know, it, it wasn't just a matter of sort of liberating the, uh, the forepaws to become hands, but also there, there was this evolution and, and readjustment of how the brain works to to focus a lot more on, on the visual side of it. Yeah, you, I wanted to share and have you run a little commentary on, on this line from your beautiful book on non-duality, David, where, where you, you, you share this quotation, only sight, therefore, provides the sensual basis on which the mind may conceive the idea of the eternal 
that which never changes and is always mm. present. This, I think, is, is incredibly important because it's, it's part of what I playfully refer to as the unholy trinity of, of seeing things, mistaking things to be solid, lasting, mm -hmm. and independent. And you, 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 you have a slightly different phraseology in your book, but when I read it, I said, oh my gosh, he's saying the same thing here. Hmm. That, that is, it's, it, again, it's sight, the, the, right. the sight-centric approach that traps us um, in this most dualistic frame. So can you say a little mm -hmm, bit more mm -hmm. about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast, first of all, with, uh, with sound, right? I mean, like the, the sound field, the, uh, the, the tactile field of, of awareness and, and, uh, and smells as well. I mean, there, there's a kind of transformative quality built into them. They are more obviously more inherently uh, impermanent. Whereas although we, uh, although our visual perceptions are also, uh, you know, transforming, the idea there is that there's some thing, some objective thing that's the source of the perception that the light is bouncing off of that, that persists. And, and, you know, one of the fascinating things to me is part of the transformation that can happen on the meditative path in terms of coming to experience things more non-dually is deconstructing this sense of duality between the objective material thing and the light that's bouncing yes. off of it. Yes. I mean, it's like just thinking about my own experience and how that has changed to some degree, how when, when I see the world more as a, a field of light, uh, then th there's also the sense that things we normally understand as material, material in the sense of sort of dead matter just sitting there, then that's when we realize that, 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 that it's not really that way, that, that the cup is a kind of a dwelling, that, that, a, that a light, <laughs> I really don't know how to express this very clearly, but it, it seems to me really important. Did you want to jump in here? Oh my gosh, I mean, well, a couple of things. I want to come back to what you just said because this is absolutely next major topic. But before we go there, David, I, I wanted to just close up, well, close up, um, throw in one last thing that when, when I was reading your um, wonderful book on this topic, that I, first of all, just the fact that you brought this up was mind blowing to me and that you had the courage to then address it was even more impressive. And that is, um, again, somewhat in resonance with this notion of evolution. If in fact the, the world is, is fundamentally non-dual in nature, like you mentioned in, in your book as a query, why in fact therefore did our senses evolve? And in particular in this case, you know, the sense of vision. So when you write about that, I, I was very deeply impressed. Um, so can you say a little bit more about that? Share, you know, why, why did our senses evolve, evolve? If we live in a fundamentally non-dualist reality, it seems on one level that our senses don't connect, they separate. Um, but that itself may be an illusion. So can you, can you speak to that just a little bit? Well, the only thing I can do there is, is sort of reinforce what I said earlier about okay. this, th this three parts of, of the, the visual presentation, how by, by naming something, by dividing up the world into a uh, bunch of uh, separate things that then do things, uh, then 
that, that enables us to experience the world as, as a collection of functions that we can then use to satisfy our desires. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can think about that in sort of more, more modern terms, but, but even, even for sort of earlier evolutionary biology, I mean, we, we can see the value in terms of, of, of seeing the world, of, of being able to uh, process and, and use the world in that way. I mean, if you think of just basic organisms, right? They, they need water, they, they need food, they need shelter, they have this desire to reproduce. I mean, for all of these basic functions, something like perception is going to be necessary. The problem is, or the question is, I guess, when does what we might call non-dual perception become yeah. more dualistic? And I guess what I was trying to point to there is I think language has an important role to play and also even script, but that's, that, that's, that's a more complicated issue. I think that script has had the effect of uh, even further accentuating the emphasis on the visual. You know, normal language, just speaking language, well, that, that prioritizes, right, the auditory hearing. Uh, but once you actually manage to reify speech into into script, especially alphabetic script, then that that adds another layer of of focus and uh, um, emphasis on the visual. Yeah, no, that's again just spot on. And so so let's come back. Let, this is actually one of the topics that I was wanting to address with you: the relationship between. Um, mind light and and even mm. appearance you know and in, in mm. tibetan the, the word for appearance and light are um very you know similar nangwa um and so mm. i i find this uh, extraordinarily interesting david for a number of reasons one is in the uh tibetan preparations for death one of the penultimate practices is uh what's called uh, um, bardo yoga retreat which is where as you probably know one goes into complete darkness for extended mm -hmm. periods of time mm -hmm. and I, i've had the great good fortune to engage in these practices and they're among the most transformative things i've ever done and, and what mm -hmm. one of the things that happens here that you're aware of that's worth sharing here that i then want to run with you a little bit on is that you know in these instances of tremendous uh, sensory deprivation where again what is the principal sense that's being deprived sight right mm. so you know you you immerse yourself in total darkness and then within a certain period of time um visions start to appear you 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 start mm. to have what you refer to in your book you know light objects but in this case they're they're um epistemological light objects mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so to me th this is this is a very revelatory type of experience. It's a little bit like what Barbara Brown Taylor was talking about. It's like, you know, you, you almost have to go into the dark to actually mm. learn how to see properly. <laughs> because when you're, when you're in the dark like that, and again, this is why it's preparation for the Bardos, and deeply connected parenthetically to dream, very, very similar. You, you don't have physical eyes um, that are uh, seeing in the Bardo. You don't have physical eyes that are perceiving light in the dark retreat or in the dream, but still things, quote unquote, are appearing, and they're appearing as light. Now, whether that light, you know, in the external world, we know that's the light reflected from external light sources, but, but where's the light coming from in the barn mm -hmm. or in the dream mm -hmm. or in dark retreat? It, mm -hmm. It's the light of the mind, is it not? And so mm -hmm. to me, what this comes down to, and this is where I really want to explore with you, is um, extrapolating those insights 
coming out of experiences like that and realizing, um, are we in, in fact not living in a world of frozen light right here and right now? And, and in fact, is that, that therefore not one way to join in, in ultimate non-dual intercourse with a phenomenal world where, where this light of the mind is actually not seen to be other than what we know mm. of external appearance. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotations, uh, which uh, was very important from my Zen master, but he was quoting Dogen, who was quoting someone else. Anyway, Dogen said after his own awakening in China, he said, you know, I came to realize clearly that mind is nothing other than rivers and mountains and the great wide earth, yeah. the sun and the moon and the stars. I mean, that doesn't specifically reference light, but in a way, I think there is, uh, is that talking about the, the juncture or the non-duality between the so-called, in quotation marks, external light and the so-called, in quotation marks, internal light, the light of the mind. Where does the light of the mind end and where does the, the objective light of the sun uh, begin? I mean, I, I, I don't have an answer to that in the sense that I can pose I can pose the question and and there's some intuitive sense there but but I'm not sure what else what else I can say about that um, I was also thinking how important though the whole concept of light is within so many of the mystical traditions right yeah. Yeah. light more light I mean it just comes up again and again and again and we talk about enlightenment yeah. as well as awakening and so clearly everything that we're riffing on here is 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 different angles on on the same thing experiencing the world in a more less as a collection of, of you know objectively as it were material sort of dead things that don't change and they're just there and, and insofar as we tend to understand the world in in a more buddhist way and in, in terms of everything is impermanent constantly transformative then i i think the the emphasis on light seems to go um along with that very well also thinking about uh, jakob Boma, the great um Protestant uh, European mystic, I think he was 17th century, who supposedly his own awakening experience happened when, or his great mystical experience, when he saw light reflected off a pewter dish. And that was it. Somehow it totally, I guess he was able to let go and have a, a very deep non-dual experience that then he spent the rest of his lifetime talking about in, in one way or the other. Sorry, yeah, I've just been kind of riffing there, but go ahead. No, I love it. I love the riffs. And, and to me, I, I find it again in this concept of near friends and near enemies, David, I find it very um, compelling that the, the light, if it's, if it's engaged or harnessed inappropriately, um, is not soteriological, then it becomes really the basis of, of so much of our samsaric trajectory. And what I'm thinking here, of course, is, is the extraordinarily damaging power of artificial light. Mm. And how it is to me, David, you know, one of the signatures of the Kali Yuga of the Dark Age, paradoxically, ironically, is in fact the advent and propagation of artificial light, mm. um, which is which is propagating at something like six point, I don't know, six, seven, eight percent every year. And, and so these are, you know, this external light is is what draws us out and away from ourselves. It, it's what keeps us up at night when the natural mm. curfew of darkness is inviting us in. Mm. And so to me, I, I find this really compelling because if light is harnessed properly, 
it does in fact lead to enlightenment. But if, if it's engaged inappropriately, it leads to our um, default, which is in darkenments. You know, we, we're actually mm. somewhat ironically blinded by light, um, external light. And, and even in the Mahamudra Dzogchen traditions, David, what they say is that, you know, at the, at the very kind of the, uh, the uh, original sin, so to speak, if there is one, and of course there isn't, in the, in the Mahamudra Dzogchen tradition is really the, the bifurcation, the fracturing, the divorce mm -hmm. of luminosity from emptiness. <laughs> and and when, when, when Samantha Badri jumps off the lap of Samantha Badra using that iconography, when, when luminosity breaks away and goes into what Basin refers to as schismogenesis, then, then fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, what we know as appearance is in fact frozen light. Mm -hmm. And therefore, mm -hmm. to bring that frozen light, that luminosity, back into harmony with, with reality, it has to be brought back into intercourse with emptiness. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, putting Samantha Badri back on the lap, um, you know, putting them back in union is what de-reifies the light. And so, again, I'm riffing on this um, as well because I, I find it so critically important, both in terms of the genesis of samsara and the recognition of nirvana, that somehow... Um, understanding this thing called light in its relationship mm. to mind and appearance is is just integral to the whole affair. Mm. Mm. Uh, two two thoughts in response to that. Uh, first is of course the the extraordinary problem that so many of us have with sleep, right? Sleep problems, <laughs> and what's the connection between that and this? preoccupation with artificial light. I mean, we, we've been hearing a lot about computers, right? Don't, don't, don't work on your computer, don't watch a video just before you go to sleep. But I think that's too narrow a critique. As you're saying, I think there's something about the nature and the wavelengths of artificial light that I think is, is, is affecting us very deeply in ways that we're not normally aware of. And I'm sure you've thought about that a lot more deeply than I have. The other point is I'm fascinated by physics. And, you know, when I have a chance, like like to read sort of popular books about what's going on there. And I, I do remember reading at one time somebody who was a physicist who was basically arguing or saying that basically the, what we understand as the material world is in fact captured light, yeah. that, that somehow photons are, are structured in a certain kind of way. And I can't say I understood it, but I was fascinated by that claim, which seems to, figure, which seems to fit in pretty well with what we're talking about now. Yes, exactly. And, and whether it's the same physicist or not, but David Bohm has, has riffed on this um, in his conversations with Krishnamurti, mm -hmm. that matter, as he put it, matter, as it, as it were, is, is um, a condensed or frozen light, and that he also... Entrapped light. Mm -hmm. Yes, Sorry, exactly. And then he mm -hmm. also further says that when we get to the nature of, of, of mind and reality, we're, we're basically subsending, so to speak, into this dimension of primordial light. And so... Mm. I, again, I just think it's so unbelievably important. And, it, you know, maybe not everybody does dark retreat, but in a certain way, we all do dark retreat when we go mm. to sleep and we dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a nightly occurrence of, of dark retreat. In fact, interestingly enough, David, in, in the Tibetan world, when they talk about sleep yoga, which is uh, the deepest and most subtle of all the nocturnal meditations, it's called Ursul, which is luminosity yoga. Um, mm. How interesting is that? That, mm. that when you're actually returning, if you can do so with lucidity into the deep dreamless state, what mm. you know, the, the Shaiva Tantra people refer to as Turiya, 
then that um, wonderful play on the word bed, that bed of mind is, is actually luminous. It's, it's also the same bed that we return to when we die, you know, the luminous bardo of Dharmata. So I, I just have this, this love affair with light, understanding it in its mm-hmm. so-called physical sense, and then most importantly, in this kind of um, epistemological sense. Mm-hmm. So anything else you have to say on this, uh, light me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, the word lucidity. It's like we usually understand that in terms of kind of, a, you know, mental clarity. But of course, if we go to the etymology, right, uh, lucid, ult, I mean, also Lucifer, light exactly. bearing. I mean, the reference there is to light. So that would seem to fit in rather well. Anyway, I guess the other thought I had was just remembering how in, in my own sort of development that, you know, there, there came a certain point when I was able to see the things, just, just how big a, big a realization or experience it was to, to see the world, to see something like walls as not sort of dead material things that were just sitting there, but in fact, they were, they were processes, they, they, they were luminous, and and some and there was an ongoing process, so that the world isn't made up of a bunch of dead material things just sitting there that we give different forms to, but that all of them are are this process that that when we see the world in in, in terms of light, we're seeing it in terms of what Buddhism emphasizes on on the impermanence. And to say that in the other way, the 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 dwelling maybe that's another word that that the wall was sort of dwelling there that it's being there was a dwelling rather than just a something dead uh, that, yeah that, that persisted that that the persistence was a kind of activity yes i guess yes, that's what i'm trying to point to yes exactly yeah. it, it reminds me of this unbelievable study that you mentioned in your book that i was not aware of by our by arthur dykeman that uh, that I, I, it just blew me out of the water that somebody in the 60s had actually um, explored this, at least, you know, um, hinting at this type of experience. Uh, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about that um, particular study and, and how that, how you came across that and how that's affected you? Uh, actually, Andrew, I might have to throw that back in you because it's been a long time since I read that, that <laughs> chapter. I mean, and I'm sure a lot's happened since then, but this was, right, this was a, a psychologist back in the 60s who was having people focus, right? It, it was a kind of meditation, but a meditation focused on really becoming aware of, of, of a particular material object and how in the process of doing it that, that changed. But frankly, if you ask me for more details, I'm going to have to page through the book, which I yeah, can do. Well, I have I, it right here. I'll, I'll just say ever briefly what, what stands out for me around that. And, and the reason that struck me, David, was when, when I did my long retreat, we engaged in a, in a really marvelous set of investigations that you may be familiar with, um, literally called Mahamudra investigations, where mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're basically five types of pointing out. And, and what they do in a highly analytic um, investigation kind of way, you know, analytic meditation, Vipassana, one looks at, um, in this case, appearance, you know, pointing out mm-hmm. appearance as mind. And, and so what we did, and when I read the study, I said, my gosh, this, this is, these are the Mahamudra studies here, mm. where, where what we did was we did just that. We, we literally stared 
in, in the way that Dykeman refers in this amazing study. And I have to tell you, I had similar types of experiences that he reports with his subjects where mm -hmm. the world, like you said, the wall in this case, I think they were looking at a blue vase or something. That's right. It, it you know, again, it, it, it ties back to that beautiful quote from Barbara Brown Taylor that when we look at things briefly, cheaply, we get this quick, discursive, cheap confidence that we're actually seeing things the way they are. Mm. And I think it's actually um, the speed of the mind that's another fundamental kind of um, propelling agent for, for the dualistic agenda. And that when the mind, when, the, when your vision actually slows down and you look at the vase or you look at the wall, or in my case, I was looking at a shrine, it, it starts to change. It, it's no longer this reified frozen entity. It, it's, it becomes um, translucent and radiant and it vibrates mm. and it moves. And, and mm. what's also interesting here that we can maybe um, riff on a little bit is how when I first had the experience, it was exhilarating. It was um, mm. better than being on an acid trip. But then, <laughs> but then actually I got a little bit um, freaked. I, I, I actually had a little mm. minor panic attack because, mm. Mm. wait a second, what's the implication here? Is the implication that my <laughs> entire world is mm. ephemeral, mm. translucent, when mm. I really pause mm. long mm. enough to take a look at it? And so mm. what happened when I did that, David, is, is I noticed a sense of contraction. I, I noticed mm. a sense, mm -hmm. you know, that I was opening to the object, in a certain sense, maybe dissolving into it, or it was dissolving into me. But then when I felt this fear, mm -hmm. I felt a contraction. And with yeah. the contraction was this simultaneous birth of self and other. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think this, again, this is a little bit why I brought up the initial question is, I personally believe, and I would love to hear what you say about this, that this type of phenomenology is taking place all the time, is we mm -hmm. are contracting mm -hmm. away from mm -hmm. this non-dual presentation. We're, we're in ultimate intercourse. And mm -hmm, we, mm -hmm. we contract away from it out of fear. And in that moment of contraction, we give birth to both self and other. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And, you know, uh, what, what stands out for me in, in the Dykeman experiments, of course, just to say what you said in a somewhat different way, that in the process of focusing on the vase, the blue vase so much, or, or in your case, the shrine, the insofar as we as, as one does that the 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 sense of duality tends to disappear right and that yes. there's there's a sense of be, of starting to become or realizing that one is that just that particular visual whatever you want to call it and and then i mean fundamentally the the i think the sense of self tends to panic and and there's this fundamental fear of letting go and that's where the crack contraction comes in one of the things that fascinates me so much about it is something very similar in fact it's just a different version of the same thing happens in the koan study in zen when people are working on mu in that case it's not working with a visual object but if you start working on mu right uh, mu is the first koan and in most of the Zen traditions and but the basic idea is to repeat Mu not out loud but in your mind with every exhalation and and the idea is to keep doing it and insofar as our sense of self is a construct you know composed of 
mostly habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and reacting, and so forth. The, the, the process of just repeating moo and moo over and over again with the exhalation becoming that, it lets go of all of those other components that, you know, maintain the sense of self. So you can actually get to a point where it's not just that there's just you and mu because you've let go of the other thoughts and feelings that arise. But as you continue to do that, you become one with mu. Mm. You become mu in the sense that there's a you that's doing the mu tends to fall away. In fact, that's even talked about in the tradition. We talk about at this stage of the retreat or whatever, mu stands up, mu sits down, mu meditates, mu goes to sleep at night, mu eats, mu whatever. So, and the the fascinating thing about it that in itself is not sort of kensho or awakening or a taste of enlightenment but it's it's it sort of primes us the 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 thing that often happens when students are working at this depth is that there is this contraction this fear arises exactly what you said because the ego is on the point of letting go and it it contracts to to, to save itself. And, and the process is just to go, keep going to that edge until you're finally able to let go of yourself. Uh, let go on the edge of the cliff, as some of the Zen masters talk about. So it's, it's fascinating to me that uh, exactly the same process is going on with somebody working on Mu in that fashion. And then when you let go of yourself, then you can have an experience of, of, of yourself and, well, an experience of the world in a more non-dual way. Yeah. Yeah. Really fantastic stuff. And so this is great, David, because, you know, there's a lot of wonderful philosophy, um, theory, so to speak, being battered around. And and I always argue here, well, it's not really theory. Um, You know, if if you haven't experienced it yet, it comes across as theory. But once you experience Mm. it, these these maps basically lead Mm. you to to the experience. And so along these lines, in, in your tradition as a Zen practitioner, and if you can speak to others as well, um, let's turn a little bit more to how um, the practice of meditation, koan study, and things like that work with uh, accessing the non-dual dimension, work with the process of deconstruction. Because I, I, I agree completely with you that coming up to the edge with these types of meditations and then become more comfortable with that, becoming more familiar with that. And then, you know, in a very real way, like I said, at the outset, um, death and death in slow motion, continuing to learn mm-hmm. to let go. I mean, letting go is just a euphemism for death, which is in my mm-hmm. opinion, again, why physical death is just a wrathful form of liberation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have the ability to titrate our deaths now. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about your own experience and what other practices, you know, to, to deconstruct, to see through this facade of duality, what else can we do? Or in a certain sense, not do? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in a way, I've, I've said maybe the main thing in terms of what happens when you work on something like Mu. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's interesting that somebody like Dogen, for example, the great 13th century Japanese Zen master, uh, I mean, he talked about it in terms of forgetting yourself, right? Mm. To study the Buddha Dharma is to study yourself or the self. To study yourself is to forget yourself. And the point of the practice, as my teacher put it, Yamada Cohen, he said, the idea of, of Zen practice is 
to forget yourself in the act of becoming one with something. Hmm. So, you know, Moo would be a classic uh, example of that. Uh, and I, I think we, we, it is worth reinforcing what we just said about that there's a kind of a resistance built in there that the, the act is, is, it's almost as if one has to trick oneself or uh, because forgetting yourself is not something you can do directly, right? It's something that is going to happen in the process of focusing on something in a way, becoming one with it. The other thing that comes to mind for me, a, a little bit marginal here, but I think it's pretty close. Uh, uh, Chogim Trungpa's famous statement about enlightenment being similar to falling out of an airplane. All right. Uh, right. Right. I mean, the bad news is there's no parachute. The good news is there's no ground. Well, in a way, what we're talking about is letting go of grounds, letting go of all the things that we cling to, uh, that the that the ego tends to hold on to. I mean, I'm never very happy talking about the ego in those terms because mm -hmm. it makes it into a thing. And that's the fundamental problem. We think it's a thing. It's not a thing. It's, 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 it's a confluence of these mostly habitual processes, uh, ways of thinking and feeling and acting that works together in a certain way to create this illusion of, of a thing that's behind that that's having the experience. And, and the idea of, of letting go is, I mean, I love the idea of no ground because it's it's giving up the ground, the the security that the ego wants. The ego always, again, I'm falling back into ego language now, but the ego feels fundamentally insecure because there's no thing there. So it's always trying to secure itself. And that fits in, yeah. that can explain a lot about our lives in terms of what we become preoccupied with and also the way our society works. But the, the the normal process is trying to secure itself and the whole idea of letting go is 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 accepting insecurity falling and realizing that the 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 ego can't secure itself because there's nothing there that can be secured but because there's nothing there that can be secured it doesn't need to secure itself something like that yeah uh, so so that's very much involved in in the letting go the contraction is is the is the resistance to that still wanting to hold on to something and the spiritual challenge of course is is that these practices are encouraging us or or giving us ways in which we can let go yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so fantastic. The other thing that came to mind here, David, is one of the things I, I just so delight in when I read, you know, the entire body of your work is what, what I playfully refer to as, as, as the kind of power of spiritual reductionism. And, and by that, what I mean is that what you're just talking about here is or alluding to is that um, when you really get down to it, and that's the essence of our conversation here, the the fundamental tenets are really pretty darn simple you know the reality is simple it's confusion that's complicated and so <laughs> so what i love about your work is that it, it has so much tremendous explanatory power for me because it it reduces in the best sense of that term um and articulates the vast display of the human condition and all you know what you talk about so beautifully in your book money sex war karma where you know, our lust for money, fame, power, 
which really, oh, geez, does that define the so-called American Western way? <laughs> These are all forms of the acquisition of reality currency that, that, we're, <laughs> that we're trying to substantiate this, this groundless, fallacious sense of self in these ways, you know, simply in many ways because we don't know better, but that have tremendous damaging repercussions to others and to, and to the ecosystem. And so talk mm -hmm. to us maybe a little bit about what you've discovered that, that until um, one really explores the nature of mind and reality at this level, until we relate to the mind instead of from it, we spend our lives chasing um, substitute gratifications. Again, this inauthentic consumerism. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so maybe talk a little bit more. In fact, we can, we can return briefly to money, power, and mm -hmm, fame mm -hmm. as this kind of um, what the, the large play, display of the Sansaric agenda um, reveals. Mm, mm, mm. I, uh, um, yeah, I, I like the word reductionism. Usually, of course, that's understood in terms of sort of materialism, right? Uh, a, that sort of physicalistic reductionism. But the sense in which I think you were using it and, and I would use it is how much we can understand what would normally be described as our, phys as our secular, you know, preoccupations. Uh, how much those can be understood as sort of confused, distorted ways of, of trying to satisfy a spiritual drive to secure ourselves. Uh, I mean, for me, the fundamental issue is, as, as I was saying, uh, in so far as reality is, is non-dual and our usual way of experiencing is, is a dualistic and, and delusive construct, this duality of separation, uh, you know, start, starting from the point I made before that Therefore, because it has no separate reality of its own, the, the sense of separate self uh, or ego is, is fundamentally insecure. And it's, it's not just insecure, it's insecurable in their sense that there's mm -hmm. nothing there that can be secured. And I, and I think the way that we normally all experience that is as a sense of lack, yeah. as a feeling that something is wrong with me, something is missing, something isn't quite right, I'm not good enough. And I think it's one of the great open secrets of, of, of the world is that we all have that sense. I mean, we, we, each of us has that sense, but we don't realize that everyone else has that sense. Uh, um, and what's fascinating then to observe is how it is that we understand that sense of lack, because I think we, we tend to be conditioned by our society um, um, in, in different ways. But for example, say growing up in 20th or 21st century United States, you know, one of the things we learned pretty quickly is that we don't have enough money or we don't have enough consumer toys and it doesn't matter how much you have, it's not enough that somehow the idea is that happiness is gonna be found through consumerism. Uh, so I, I would call these lack projects in the sense that they are ways in which we try to fill up the sense of lack at the very core of our being. Or I sometimes call them reality projects because another way to describe this is that our sense of lack means we don't feel real enough and we're looking for that which will help us feel more real. And, and I think money and consumerism is obviously uh, a, a very important one, but also fame, uh, you know, re reputation, um, uh, 
I think that's especially true given the kind of role of modern media, the way that uh, it, it tends to reproduce certain, certain people. We tend to see the same figures, the same A-list Hollywood celebrities or politicians, whatever, singers. Uh, and, and there's the sense in which, because everyone is seeing them, they are somehow more real. And if yeah. only I can become famous like them, then I'll be more real. And, you know, we, we can talk about a number of other lack projects, but the fundamental problem with all of them, and, and I think this is so tragic and so important, of course, is that it, because that external preoccupation with getting enough money, getting enough consumerism, becoming famous enough, because that's really a, a symptom, a distorted misunderstanding of what the fundamental problem is, that the, that the sense of self is inherently empty and therefore insecure. So, so many of us, and our culture encourages us to do this in many ways, so many of us be, become preoccupied in chasing money and fame in a way, because at a deep unconscious level, we think that that will satisfy us, that will not just make us happy, but sort of give this um, illusory, uh, impermanent sense of self, some kind of reality. And tragically, it just doesn't, doesn't work. And, and so one of the beautiful things about the Buddhist path, for example, at its best, is that it actually can, can um, show us the way to actually resolve the problem, which is awakening. Although it's also true, and I certainly notice this in the Buddhist world, how you know, becoming enlightened and becoming a great Zen master, etc., can also just become another version of the uh, of 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 the lack project. But if we meditate in the right way, I think we tend to see through that and and work through it, and 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 can have the kind of experiences that Buddhism and and we have been talking about. Yeah, I mean, just what you said there is is liquid gold. It's amazing to me. You know, we 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 get fat instead of full because again, we're mm. eating the menu instead of the meal. And so several things here, David, one is to kind of ping back on this, again, this really powerful notion that, you know, what do we really want? What, what is actually authentic consumption? What is authentic mm. consumerism? And I would argue is we want to devour reality. We, we, <laughs> want, to, we want to consume the mm. present moment. But in order to do that properly, we have to devour ourselves, so to speak. Um, mm. And that, that, that's, you know, there's this kind of, um, kind of conflict of interest, this kind of bipolar relationship we have to that agenda. Because on one level, there's an intuition that in order to do that, we have to die. Uh, mm. or, or better, as you put it, we, you know, how, how do you write it so beautifully? Um, basically um, discover that which cannot die because it was never born. Um, mm -hmm. And so to me that I, I want to riff on this because it is so important. And if you really get this, it's an absolute game changer because it changes mm -hmm. everything, you know, in, in the Buddhist language, David, they, the, the term for Buddhist literally is uh, nangpa, which means insider. The mm -hmm. non-Buddhist is uh, chipa, which is outsider. And so mm -hmm. as, as long as, you know, we're looking outside, we're looking for love and all and happiness in all the wrong directions. And mm -hmm. we're never going to find what we're looking for because, you know, Hamarsha, the, the sin, the, the target is off. We're missing the mark. And so just mm -hmm. these tenets um, turn Chipa into Nangpa, outside into inside. So now at least we're looking in the right direction. We're, mm -hmm. we're looking within. We start to consume what really does need to be consumed. 
and, and that fundamentally is the only thing that will satisfy. Um, so anything on that before, I wanna pick up on one other thing you said, but it's just a slightly different um, track, but I wanted to make that comment before I make this other kind of transition. Yeah, well, a, a couple of quick comments. I mean, to, to continue the metaphor, uh, if, if we understand the, that, that what's going on is that we're, we're, we're trying to find something outside that will fill up the bottomless pit at the core of our being, uh, you know, the, the emptiness, and, and that one can never fill it up. You can never become rich enough or famous enough. Uh, if if that's the way you understand what your fundamental problem is, uh, the 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 part of riti, the the turning around, you know, continuing the analogy there, the the letting go of the sense of self is opening up, and that sort of void or emptiness at the core of our being, then that can be experienced in a very different way as sort of the source of creativity. It's it's the I don't know if I want to use the word link here, but but it's the gate. It's the gateway. It's the opening to something greater than the sense of self that that therefore, I mean, of, often the sense we have of something flowing through us that that the that the sense of self is were is as it were out of the way, and that then that we are expressions or 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 manifestations of something greater, something that as it were takes form or we might even want to say wants to take form through us or, or as us. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, I, but, but that's one way to sort of metaphorize or analogize the, the point. The other thing I wanted to mention is um, the connection between what we've just been talking about on a spiritual and individual level, but also that, that there are important implications here for how we understand society. Yes. Because I think, uh, and I think that, um, we can understand, say, in it. Well, I actually wrote a book called *The Buddhist History of the West*, which has nothing to do with the history of Buddhism in the West. But it's it's taking this lack approach and looking at how, at different periods in Western civilizations' history, how our sense of lack has been understood in different ways. And certainly we can understand now with the kind of consumerism and preoccupation with, with wealth and money and fame that we're caught up in. You know, we can see how this isn't just an individual problem, but it's a social, it's an economic and political problem in the sense that we, we have institutions that have sort of reified this. I mean, our economic system can't work. It would collapse if we didn't define, if it didn't, without the way that it uses advertising to encourage us to understand our sense of lack as not enough of this or not enough of that. So this is also, so I guess what I'm trying to point to here is that this is all not only a, a sort of more contemporary way to understand the Buddhist path, but built into it, I think, is a really powerful social critique of the places where our society and our now global civilization is stuck. And stuck in a massive way. And, mm. and so with this in mind, little confession on my part, I, I used to be perhaps naively more optimistic because of the tenets of basic goodness and, and perfect purity and in, in these foundational spiritual proclamations. I, I, I used to be a little bit more optimistic, David, than I am now. Um, but you know, when I opened my mind and my heart, and and I, I realized, and this again, this this starts to lead into some of your latest work. 
just you know the amount of the kind of applied ignorance as you put it the institutionalized passion aggression and ignorance in the military and the media it's, it's unbelievable so uh where do you stand um are you optimistic about the human species you write in one of your books that you know one percent or less of, of species that have evolved survive 99 <laughs> go extinct you know why should we think that we're somehow different when you throw your javelin into the future, do you think another um, human being will be there to catch it? I mean, what, what, is, your, what, is, what is your sense? Because you, you have such a, a, a massive understanding of what's actually happening on a spiritual, psychological, evolutionary, and even scientific kind of um, perspective. What do you see when you look into the future? Do you remain optimistic? Well, you know, you were asking, are, are we a, a different species? Are we yeah. somehow going to, are we, I mean, I think we definitely are, right? I mean, there is something very distinctive about the human species, right? I mean, our, our ability to talk, our ability to work together and coordinate, our ability to create technology. I mean, you know, there, without get falling into some kind of biblical, we're created in the image of God in the way that nothing else is. Uh, we still have to acknowledge that there is something unique about us, which doesn't necessarily mean that we have greater value uh, than, than any other species. Uh, but is that uniqueness sufficient to keep from destroying ourselves, or is in fact that uniqueness what's enabling us to destroy ourselves when you think of our abilities to create technologies without real understanding of, of what they're going to do? Right. I mean, or yeah. I guess the best example now would be fossil fuels. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, am I optimistic? Uh, no, I'm not even hopeful. Um, but I also think of those as dualistic ways of thinking that uh, I, I don't get caught up in because I'm not motivated by them. Right. Mm -hmm. I think hope and despair, it's, it's a great example of that duality that I yeah. started out talking about. If you think about the future and if you're motivated by hope, that means you're gonna be haunted or sh at least shadowed by despair, by the fear that the hope that you're hoping for isn't going to work out. And f for me, what motivates the bodhisattva is something much deeper than that. It's like, I mean, my, my sense of what we are challenged to do at this particular point in time is, uh, and, and I think this comes straight from the way that the Bodhisattva path is, is described in Buddhism, is um, non-attachment to the result of actions. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, and it's interesting, when you go back to the Pali Canon, one of the terms that the Buddha uses to describe uh, the actions of somebody who's awakened, it's nirasa literally means, right, without expectation, sometimes translated without hope. And that can mean a lot of different things. But my, my sense of it, I mean, picking out what is most important for me is, is, the, is, is the sense that at this particular point in history, uh, where, you know, we can see just how dangerous it is that we have these cascading multiplying crises and to be frank it, it doesn't look good i mean ecologically it it and so it's not important to be caught up in sort of um sort of naive optimism there nonetheless what's really important for me is is 
what Buddhism emphasizes as as don't know mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we talk a lot about this in uh, in Zen, not really knowing what's possible, not not taking for granted that we know all the causal factors that are operating. So, but basically putting all that together, and I do talk about this in my last book, the Ikadharma book. Uh, I think my task, and indeed the task for all of us, insofar as we're Buddhist practitioners, is to do the very best we can, not knowing if anything we do is going to make any difference whatsoever. And, and, and that's the joy of Buddhist practice today, that I think uh, the challenge of the Buddhist tradition, and maybe we can say even this is where it needs to grow a bit uh, or develop in a certain way, is you know not just understand it in terms of personal or individual transformation, but realizing that along with non-duality, this is another kind of non-duality that, you know, uh, my own individual transformation, my own well-being isn't separate from the well-being of other people or indeed, you know, the well-being of, of, of the earth. And so that rather than, hmm, let me say a little differently. I mean, I think at the beginning of our practice, we naturally are motivated by some kind of dukkha, some kind of dissatisfaction in our lives, whether that's pain or something more, more diffuse, maybe existential anxiety. Uh, and so there's a kind of natural self-preoccupation, but the whole point of the path is that it eventually exposes that at the root of our dukkha is the delusion of separation. And insofar as we overcome that duality, then I think, the 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 compassion that all the traditions emphasize today we need to apply that in terms of understanding where our civilization is at and doing the best we can to address it to say it again not knowing whether anything i do will make any difference and you know knowing that the buddhist tradition which developed and evolved in such a very different time and place it doesn't tell us what to do but it does give us this insight into into act, acting in this fashion and uh and there's something absolutely joyful again it's not you know so much of so much of um, our life individually is sort of constantly projected into the future and, and that's what's so scary about death but also you know we can say collectively as well in terms of asking what is the future of our civilization what's the future of humanity what's the future of indeed the earth and and, and the joy of this acting without a non-attachment to results is it's not dependent upon whether or not humanity is going to survive for another hundred years or a hundred thousand years in, in a way it doesn't make any difference it's like I do the best I can now, and I, I, I can joyfully lead that, leave that because I don't have ultimate control over the, the results. I'm kind of meandering a bit there now, oh, but I think you can get a sense of, of what I'm talking about. Oh, it's pretty brilliant meandering and, and extremely practical and helpful in the way to dovetail in all this to the kind of the non-dual narrative. And so maybe one thing that comes to mind here also is the the... the can inspire people is because we still obviously capitulate to um, self and other, me doing my thing. I, I notice a lot of, of, of people now, especially with the political situation, um, the apathy, sometimes it can, it can be born that leads to things like non-voting and, and, and mm -hmm. inactivity. 
Right. Can you say a little bit, David, about, uh, I guess it's just a little bit more unpacking of what you're just talking about. How, what would you say to people that, that come up to you and say, it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm, I'm just one ineffectual voice in this incredible tsunami of ignorance, pain, and suffering. So I'm just going to, you know, whatever, check out. So say a little bit more. It's just perhaps it's just a way to rephrase what you said within that lens when, when people feel like they're not leaving a legacy. They're not creating um, and affecting the world in, in a way that, that somehow meets up to their own standards and criteria. What, what would you say to someone like that? Um, well, let me back up a little bit first and, and just uh, maybe reiterate, I, I think that this is kind of the growing tip of the Buddhist tradition because uh, in the, you know, in the Asian Buddhist traditions, uh, the focus very much was on individual practice and individual transformation and even the Bodhisattva path tended to be understood more in terms of individuals helping other individuals, especially teachers helping students. Uh, and, and I think to a large degree, this, is, this was necessary within the Asian Buddhist traditions because you know, none of them was democratic and Buddhism had to be somewhat careful that it wasn't gonna be squashed and, and destroyed if it sort of challenged the power of the king. When I go back to the original teachings of the Buddha and his attitude say toward women and caste, I think he was a lot more progressive than the institution that developed uh, afterwards. But, but I think what's happened now as Buddhism has come to the West slash the, the modern world, uh, a couple important things have happened. One of them, of course, is that we do have, at least in principle, democracy in the sense that Buddhists aren't simply constrained in terms of what they can focus on, that we can look at social issues. And I also think that we have, we can have a much uh, deeper appreciation of how what the Buddha identified as the three poisons, or sometimes called the three fires, greed, ill will, delusion, how those have taken institutionalized form. I mean, I think in the modern world, we not only have, you know, much more, you know, powerful technologies, we have much more powerful institutions that, uh, well, calling them an institution means they, they've, they've taken on a life of their own. And therefore, it seems to me to follow from that, that insofar as Buddhism understands those as, as the root of the problem, right? The Buddha didn't talk about evil per se, but it's much more the idea that when what we do is motivated by these three poisons, it's going to be dukkha, they're going to be problems. And, and acknowledging and recognizing that, I think, changes the whole ballgame of, of what it means to be a bodhisattva, that it's not sufficient to ignore that institutionalized version. And, and maybe I should say here how, I mean, I think our economic system, by its preoccupation with... Uh, growth, the fact that it needs to continue growing if it's not going to collapse, or the way that consumerism, we have to be persuaded to keep consuming and so forth. I think that's a kind of institutionalized greed that, as we know now, in terms of its impact on the earth and its resources uh, and, and ecosystems, it's, it's very destructive. Likewise, our, our institutionalized ill will, militarism is a good example of that, um, our attitude toward uh, immigrants. And then institutionalized delusion of the media that, you know, want to keep us understanding ourselves in terms of um, uh, c consumers, uh, basically defining ourselves in that way. And, and, and the tribalisms of, of racism and uh, nationalism and so forth. I think 
the growing edge for the Buddhist tradition, uh, one of the important growing edges is understanding those as forms of the three poison that we have to address. And that means it's not simply a matter of, you know, transforming myself through meditation uh, and maybe as a Zen teacher helping others, but we really need to think together, what can we do to address these institutionalized problems that frankly are, are leading our civilization to, to self-destruct. Um, and, you know, inevitably this means, although it's, it's challenging and Buddhism doesn't give us simple answers, it means we do have to become parts of the social movement. We do have to find ways to work with other people. As long as we think of ourselves as individuals, yes, we're going to get very frustrated. What the hell can I do? But I'm reminded of uh, uh, Bill McKibben when he right. was in Paris for the uh, New York talk, uh, sorry, for the, uh, for the uh, climate talks. He was approached by a woman who asked him, you know, what can I do as an individual? And he said, stop being an individual. Yeah, you know, we really need to, you know, and again, Buddhism doesn't, I mean, my understanding of the Buddhist teachings, it emphasizes the importance of this without giving us specific instructions of how to do it. But I think we do have to get off our butts. We do have to acknowledge that it's enough, that it's not enough just to you know, work for our own awakening, we do have to realize this other sense of non-duality that, that my spiritual well-being is not separate from the spiritual well-being of other people and the earth. And that does uh, motivate, uh, motivate or hopefully empower us to, to, to work uh, in this direction. So, I mean, obviously, politically, one really important thing to do is this coming election. For goodness sake, we all know that we have to vote, but we also need to ask much deeper questions about our, our economy and what's necessary to shift it from a dependent on fossil fuels to, uh, to renewables. Yeah, this is this. What a rich beret of offerings here, David. You know, what, <laughs> what comes to my mind here is, again, we talked earlier about how it is that we unwittingly practice duality. This points back to that and also points to how we can now um, consciously actually practice non-duality. And I think this is important because, um, and it's also, it's also somewhat revelatory diagnostic that I think Almas once put it famously, you know, when most people set out on the spiritual path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven. We, we, just want, we just want to feel good. And, and so <laughs> what you're talking about here is really kind of applied spirituality and, and completely resonant with the question I want to direct um, you further towards here is that in exactly the spirit of what you're talking about here, you have this unique capacity because you, you stand not only as a practitioner of, of the Buddhist tradition, the wisdom traditions, but again, you know, you raise your gaze and, and you look so widely at other disciplines throughout the world. From your perspective, in addition to what you just said, what other blind spots do you see with spiritual practitioners? Where, what is it that we don't see that we don't see? Um, I, I see this extremely often. You know, for instance, when I, I teach a lot, I'll go to a retreat center, you know, 5, 10, 15 years after my initial visit. And... I'm sure you've had this experience. Somebody will come up to me 15 years after I first met them, 
um, basically griping about exactly the same issue they griped about 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> and, and so to me, it's like, you know, sometimes the instruction, go back and meditate harder. That's not the right instruction. Sometimes mm. that you have to look at things in a much more, um, you know, kind of honest lens. And so I see this a lot with the, the kind of the, the absolutism, the near enemy of these spiritual uh, paths mm. where, oh, my spirituality mm. can handle everything. Emptiness can handle everything. Well, yeah, mm. in theory, I suppose that's true. <laughs> emptiness can handle everything. But in reality, in my experience, it doesn't seem to work that way. So in addition <laughs> to what you're just saying, this is so revelatory, helpful for me. What else do you see um, as a, maybe some generalizations or specificities that practitioners generally tend to get lost in, blind spots, things that spiritual mm. people just don't see that they don't see? Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded when I first started Buddhist practice back in the early 70s uh, Zen practice. Um, I remember living in the Maui Zendo for a while, and you know, we we very much had the sense, oh, what an incredible practice, what an amazing path we have discovered, and, and it was true. But somehow, it was the idea that oh, this is it, and if you know what's going to happen in the future is that just more and more people are are going to discover this, and uh, and this will this is going to change everything. And of course, it, it certainly has spread since then. But no, nonetheless, I think there was a certain kind of naivety there. And also naivety about the idea that somehow, uh, if you simply meditate long enough and hard enough, that all of the other stuff will take care right. of itself. Right, right. exactly. I mean, and, and by that, I mean both internally and externally. Externally in the sense that if if enough people meditated, then they would become different and the social system would become different. But, but also it, internally in the sense that, you know, whatever our psychological hangups may be, that, that those, you know, that the, the meditation will in its own way deal with those. And, and I think one thing we've realized is, as you said, it's not that simple. And in fact, I would say, this is one of the really important developments in, in modern Buddhism. Um, I really appreciate John Wellwood's talking about spiritual bypassing and how it is that our ways of understanding our spiritual practice can actually, you know, reinforce ego problems um, uh, and how important it can sometimes be then to combine meditation practice with a, a sort of Buddhist friendly psychotherapy yeah. that, that, that can help us get in touch with um, you know, deep-rooted psychological issues that otherwise uh, can can fester, or or can even um, reinforce us in the wrong ways, right? A kind of macho uh, pushing through to awakening, or 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 whatever. There, yeah. I mean, it, the big issue I think is, given the Buddhist tradition, it's natural to understand the path. In, in terms of, um, what am I trying to say here? The, the focus on individual transformation, as, as I was saying earlier, why, why do we come to Buddhism? Mm -hmm. Why do we come to meditation? Well, you know, when you think of all the hassles involved, uh, you know, not just the time and the money, but the aching butts, the aching minds and so forth. 
Uh, and obviously it's because there's something wrong in our lives. There's, there's something insufficient. There's some form of dukkha. But we can say at that level, there's a certain kind of self-preoccupation, uh, which is necessary, but also in a way part, part of the problem. I mean, I know social activists who don't like Buddhism because they see Buddhists as very sort of self-preoccupied. Mm -hmm. Well, I think to some degree that's necessary at the beginning and it's appropriate, you know. Um, but as we get more deeply into the practice, I think that if, if the practice is leading to the kinds of experiences and transformations that we've been talking about earlier, then it should help to sort of expose or, or help us see through the delusion of separation. And therefore, it seems to me a, an inevitable and natural, if you will, fruit of the practice is to become less self-preoccupied. Uh, and yet that often doesn't happen. Is that, is that because the ego is so deeply rooted? Is that because that, you know, somehow our teachers and teachings aren't, uh, you know, leading us in the right direction? I, I don't know, but I still see this as maybe the major, the major problem in, in Buddhist practice today, the understanding that ultimately it's all about me and leave me alone to, you know, focus on my own awakening. And, you know, when I really get there, then maybe I'll come out and become, become engaged. But, but I think there's, there's, there's a delusion there that reinforces the fundamental problem that at whatever stage we are in our practice, reflecting that i think it's important to be engaged because frankly if 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 buddhism can't help us understand and respond to the very unique social uh, set of crises that we're facing today and i really think you know these are the this is the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced if, if buddhism can't help us understand and respond to that and not just on the individual level of tuning out from it. If Buddhism can help us overcome the idea that ultimately my salvation is going to be turning away from all that and finding a heaven that I can go to that's immune to all of these problems. If Buddhism can help us overcome that delusion, which is so deep in Buddhism as it is in so many other spiritual traditions, then is Buddhism what we need today? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, there's very powerful proclamations. And one, one thing that came to mind here, David, is that, again, the kind of the spirit of this near enemy thing, that um, this is a term that is somewhat unfortunate, but, you know, the, the, the Hinayana, the so-called narrow mm -hmm. vehicle within the context mm -hmm. of the three Yanas, it's like you're talking right. about it. Initially, there does seem to be tremendous value importance in provisional retreat. Mm -hmm. And so we retreat onto the cushion, we, we work on our stuff. But then my riff on this is that, right next door is egos reifying concretizing tendencies where oh i'm just going to stay here this actually kind of feels okay i you know there's, there's moments when i'm entering my little self-absorbed samadhi and you know that yeah that's that's the comfort plan just being transplanted on the spiritual arena and so this as you know is the the tremendous um gift exhortation of the greater vehicle the mahayana to come in and actually push us off the cushion and so a lot of people I think just haven't taken that step. It, it, it feels pretty, you know, what, what Trungpa Rinpoche talked about is the cocoon. 
it, mm -hmm. it feels you, you develop a spiritually materialistic cocoon that it's just a subtle more refined type of entrapment you know <clears throat> and so i think a lot of people mm -hmm. just get stuck there and so, and it really it's like to me i couldn't agree more with you that the world is really demanding commanding this type of response mm -hmm. and and i think in this day and age that that our retreat is more in the bernie glassman arena mm -hmm. where you just get get off your butt and do your practice mm. in the world mm. um, because otherwise spiritual bypassing i mean it's alive and well right now and mm -hmm. and again it, it, buddhism becomes irrelevant if if we can't meet the um container that we're currently existing in and so i think mm. your work in this regard is is of just paramount importance to in a kind of the socratic way right you know just run around and, and rattle the cages and say hey wait a second here. <laughs> You know, ask the hard questions, mm. uh, deliver the, the difficult queries, and then be basically spur people into action. So, and so my dear friend, as, as we start to, to wind this up, I, I absolutely positively have to have you back because we haven't even touched on, on my favorite <laughs> book of yours, which is uh, Lack and Transcendence. We hit on that, but just barely. I, I, with your indulgence and permission, I want to ask you two kind of sophomoric questions, but I, I find these things helpful when I come back and think about um, interviews with great minds. Two questions. One is the silly proverbial one, uh, your Desert Island book. You know, you, you have read so <laughs> extensively, right? I mean, your, your, your scholarship is incredible. If you could take one book to an island, what, what, what would, what's the most transformative book you've read? What would be the book that you would take with you? <laughs> oh, that, that's a really tough question. Um, I'll, I'll I mean, give you two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me, yeah. So there have been so many books that have been transformative, but because they've been transformative, I don't know that I'd necessarily want to read them again, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I suppose when I think about the gaps, it, uh, I've, I've, I mean, as, as you've said, I'm fascinated by the Buddhist tradition, not only that one, but other non-dual traditions or the non-dual elements or strains in, in other spiritual traditions as well. And I'm also interested in, in so much of the work in modernity and evolutionary psychology and things like that. Uh, but I, I suppose something that I might well take with me, and again, because maybe this could be one huge book, it would probably be the Pali Canon, you know? Mm -hmm. I've done a lot more with Mahayana sutras and Mahayana sources and Nagarjan and people like that. I've certainly drawn on the Pali Canon and taught it and so forth, but it's so voluminous there, and I do have the sense that there are so many treasures there to be, so many jewels to be appreciated, and, you know, even accepting that it, it wasn't written down for what, over 300 years. So, you know, things have been right. changed and lost and added, but nonetheless, there's something very, very precious. So if I could get it all into one volume, that, that might be the book. There you go, there you go. And here, here's an even sillier one, <laughs> but your um, theoretical so-called thought experiment. If, if you, again, it's in the spirit of um, irreducibility, you know, let's, we're getting down to it in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So if you were to discover that you had one minute left to live right now what would be the irreducible instruction what what would you leave us with <laughs> no problem thank you uh thank you thank you um you know meister eckhart greatest of the christian mystics he said 
if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, mm. that's enough. Mm. And that's what I would say. Thank you. Thank you. I've had a wonderful, wonderful life. Thank you. Thank you to everyone, yeah. including thank you, Andrew Holacek. Yeah, David, how beautiful, my friend. Wow, what, what a real feast. Thank you so much, my friend, for your generosity, for your life work. You, you are an amazing force. And um, for my listeners, I, I, my only regret is that I didn't come across David's work earlier. But since I have, I'm devouring absolutely everything this amazing individual has put to print. And I recommend you do the same. So um, I always allow people at the very end, David, to put up their lemonade stand. How can people learn more about you? <laughs> how, how can we best support you? Because part of what we do here is we have the spirit of cross-pollination where, where mm. I like to introduce my audience to other really gifted individuals so they can then um, support you in your own work. So um, tell us a little bit about how people can um, reach you, support you, and, and uh, that sort of thing. Well, there's a simple answer to that question. Uh, just check out my website, um, right? davidloy.org. And there's lots of stuff on there. There's uh, an extraordinary number of, uh, uh, you know, blogs and, and essays and podcasts and videos. And there's also a, a page that mentions all, all the books, including it, it gives intros to the books, which usually gives summaries. So that's a kind of nice overview. And uh, there's a schedule page and there's a donation page and there's a contact page and a teaching page and you know so that would be th the place to start and i would imagine that would keep people busy for quite a while terrific terrific well david we have to do this again we, we really as far as we went with the, the uh, vast offerings that you've made we've scratched the surface of, of the mm -hmm. your work and so i would love to have you back in a year or so maybe to talk more specifically about your current work in, uh, in evolutionary psychology and how that's dovetailing in with your work in ego dharma and the like but um between now and then thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us i for one have learned a great deal and i'm so grateful a big thank you to you thank thank you i, I really uh, appreciate this invitation andrew and uh uh enjoyed it thoroughly and i'm you know i'm, I'm delighted that we've made contact and we're not living very far apart so i really look forward to deepening the friendship and uh continuing the conversation Absolutely. We'll make it happen. All the best, my friend. Take care. Thank you, Andrew. Be well. Well, that wraps it up for today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. If you did enjoy this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on my club. And until next time, stay healthy and pleasant dreams.